What's up, everybody? This is your host, Catherine Ann, psychic medium, intuitive coach, and true crime addict. This week's episode is actually a Patreon-exclusive feature. The interview was conducted in January of this year, and you are hearing the replay of it. So if this is something that interests you, go ahead and join our Patreon and join in on these live interviews where I tell the story of typically a serial killer, and then you all get to ask questions as we stay connected to him or her on the other side. This last month was John Wayne Gacy. So if the topic of abuse against children or sexual abuse against children bothers you as it does most, but if it's something that's a trigger for you, then please skip this episode and just wait for next week's to come out. With that being said, the Patreon community is always open for more of you to join in on these interviews, as you will hear the voices of some of the patrons within this episode. And lastly, before I hit the play button on this one for y'all, I would like to let you know that the latest group is starting with Catherine and Intuitive, and this is showing up for your self-worth business edition. So for the intuitive who is looking to start their own business or maybe possibly already has, this is right up your alley and getting your energy right in order to make this work for you. This is for the one who's dipping their toes in and ready to go full steam ahead. More on that in the coming episodes and y'all enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and I can't wait to hear the feedback. Welcome to Murder and Mediumship live episode with John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois in March of 1942. His father was an abusive alcoholic, very physically abusive with both his mom and his two sisters. I thought it was kind of funny today. And I even mentioned to my mom that I believe he was the middle child. And that has me in all sorts of giggles because I've always claimed that the middle child is the craziest as a middle child myself. So John Wayne Gacy actually had congenital heart, a congenital heart condition that kept him from playing with other kids and from being physically active. So not only was he ostracized at home and made fun of and bullied endlessly by his father, but he was also bullied for not being able to play with the other kids at school. And I believe he also got a little squishy in his younger days, little chubby and was made fun of for that as well. So throughout his life, he experienced a lot of heartache and confusion and turmoil over um, his sexuality, really. And there are various sources that also talk about, because I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of people who struggle with their sexuality and they don't become predators like this. Like I am not comparing one to the other in any way. So let's just remove that from any commentary possible whatsoever in the future. One does not even come close to equating to the other for crying out loud. But what I do want to say is that I have found in a couple of sources and also felt prior to that he was sexually abused by a family friend. And I had found as well in the research that it was a friend of his father's who had sexually abused him and like driven him around in his truck, I believe. I have watched way too many documentaries on this man at this point. I cannot even this creature. I won't even call him a human. Um, I get chills when I said that as well, but I, I would agree with this, that he was definitely sexually abused. And I don't even know if it was like that specifically or the culmination of that with the abuse from his also be so much for this poor, especially an incident with a vehicle that Gacy had, his father had purchased for him when he had turned 18 and 
graduated high school. And this is so messed up. So Gacy's father bought this vehicle for him. I believe it was just like a small four-door sedan. And when his dad bought the car for him, Gacy was paying him back for it. So it wasn't just a gift. He had to pay him for it. But in accepting this gift or this like wonderful circumstance from his dad, he also had to accept that his dad was going to take the keys away whenever Gacy did anything that bothered his dad. And it really seemed seems to me like it was literally over anything. He could have looked at him wrong and he'd take the keys away because he was being a sissy or whatever. So his dad took the keys away countless times and Gacy finally said, forget it. I'm going to make a copy of these keys. So he had a copy made. And when he had the copy made and drove off, despite his father taking away what he thought were the only set of keys, his dad decided to then remove the distributor cap on the car. I'm not going to pretend like I know what that means, but I do understand that it means that he couldn't go anywhere. And that is, suffice it to say, frustrating and kind of like, what a mockery and what a bully, what an awful bully. So this is me trying really hard to clean up my language on here, if you can tell. (laughs) So Gacy couldn't do anything that didn't displease his father and he couldn't do anything that pleased him. He was actively paying his father back. The keys were getting taken away. And when the distributor cap got returned, I think it was like three days his dad held the cap hostage. Casey hit the road for Vegas where he ended up, he had started out working as an ambulance attendant or something like that. He was working with 911. And it's so odd to me that he started on the life-saving side of things and then poof, rolled so quickly into this monstrosity. So while he was in Vegas, he started with the ambulance and then he was transferred to working in the mortuary where he would sleep on a cot outside of the embalming room. I don't know if you could pay me enough money to do that. I understand desperation, but I still feel like, I don't know, I'd sell like pictures of my feet, maybe my dirty underwear before I'm sleeping outside on a cot. Yes, this will not be snipped from the recording. Hell no. So Gacy's in Vegas. He's working as a mortuary attendant. He's sleeping on the cot in the embalming room. And I'm not sure who he divulged this to, but it eventually comes out that one evening he climbed into a coffin of a deceased male, I believe like a teenager or so, and he started to caress it, so to speak. Okay. So Evidently, during this whole ordeal, he was kind of shocked with what he had done. And he climbed out of the coffin and it it sounds as if he like immediately called his mom and asked if his dad would be willing to have them come home or allow him home, which his dad immediately said, yep, come on home. Totally fine. You know, smooth things over. And Gacy went back to Chicago. So things are quiet for a little while as far as the media is concerned there really isn't much going on between his move back from Vegas. And then he eventually moves to Springfield, Illinois in 1964 to work as a manager for a shoe company. And this is where he meets his first wife and the mother of his two children, Marlon. I would like to say as well, I'm sure there is plenty that happened in the interim here, either that we are not privy to or that I did not find in my brief research because I did not want to deep dive into it so we could preserve some sense of complete like intuition here. But also, if you got so specific, on, there are just too many rabbit holes to go down in this case, way too many rabbit holes to go down. So he moves to Springfield, Illinois in 1964 to work as a manager for a shoe company. This is where he meets his first wife, 
the mother of his children. And it is said where he had his first homosexual experience. He was a member of what they called the United States Junior Chamber. It's a civic organization for leadership training and business management skills where he evidently met a lot of men. Now, what's even more concerning is that this isn't just where he met a lot of men. His experience with these, um, you, I love when Sabrina has her dog sneaking in there. Um, when he was with the United States Junior Chamber, this is also where he had his first sexual experience that is on the record as being an inappropriate relation with a minor. And it's it's also at this point, I believe he's in Waterloo, Iowa, and I, I neglected to take us there, but he moves to Waterloo, Iowa with his father-in-law and her family because his father-in-law somehow acquired three KFC restaurants. So they're rolling in it. He is going to run all three of these stores and he's making fairly decent money. He and his wife have two children, Michael and Christine. And two years into his marriage, he sodomizes a 15-year-old, I believe it was maybe 16-year-old boy who was the son of one of these JC members, the junior chamber members. And these junior chamber members, I mistakenly thought they could be like probably in their early twenties. They could go anywhere from like 18 to age 40. So it was this wide range of men and of ages of men who were in here. And they were all trying to fulfill some political fantasy that they had for their lives. So two years into his marriage, he's convicted of sexually assaulting Donald Voorhees, a son of a fellow JC. He's given a 10-year prison sentence, but if you guys didn't already know this, and I'm sure that you already do, he only served 18 months of that sentence. 18 months. He had been up for parole a couple of times, and on the third try, I believe it was, he finally made parole, and his wife had divorced him. His children were gone. No one was there for him in Iowa anymore, so he packed up and he moved back to Chicago. This wasn't the only kid he victimized in Waterloo, though. There was also a 15-year-old who he had convinced and manipulated into having sex with his wife, Marilyn. Marlon. I'm sure I'm saying her name wrong. I digress. Regardless, after convincing this child to have sex with his wife. The amount of abuse going on behind closed doors with his wife, I cannot even imagine when you just try to process that statement. He then blackmails said child into giving him oral sex. So now he moves back to Chicago and he starts a business after he tries his hand at being a short order cook for a little while. I can only imagine the number of young people he must have met doing that as well. But it's not filling his, his cup for him. So he starts a business, painting, decorating, and maintenance, aptly named PDM. And he remarries in 1972 to his sister's friend, Carol Hoff. Now, Carol was actually someone he had dated briefly when he was 16. And I want to say it was even just like a date or two. It wasn't like they were like dating for a long time. But he marries her. She has two children and they all move in with him. And at the time, his mother who moved out pretty quickly, I think, after the marriage or right before it. It was one or the other. So Carol's also divorced. She's got a baggage. She's got baggage of her own. He admits to her that he's bisexual. Okay. Openly says this to her. I am bisexual. He does not say I am a predator, but he admits to being bisexual. And we have to remember that in the 70s, this isn't like it's 
2022 coming out as gay or bisexual or anything that is not just like a straight male, whatever is already a difficult thing to do. Not that it's not difficult to do now, but it definitely wasn't as widely accepted. And I imagine that they may have been difficult, but it kind of sounds like he spat it out. Like, this is what I am. Take it or leave it. You're kind of damaged too, is what I get around this relationship. Like it wasn't something that ever had a lot of intimacy. And it actually would turn out that on mother's day in 1975, he slept with her for the last time and said he would never have sex with her again. And he didn't. So she divorced him in 1976. And I mean, like I said, there's so many good documentaries out there about Gacy and I can definitely link a couple of them. I'm sure most of you have already seen them. Like I said, he's in this ranch house with Carol his and her daughters and he killed his first victim in 1972. From what I understand too, she wasn't always there. She would stay with in-laws and she would like kind of bounce in and out because I can imagine it wasn't very comfortable being there. But regardless, she would go on record later saying that in 1972, she did remember a strange odor starting to come from the attic, which he claimed was a leaky sewer pipe, but in all actuality is where the body of his first victim was. So something else about Gacy that people often equate to him is this clown character. He created like the killer clown. So the clown and his killing were never actually connected. It was, he was a clown for these children in the hospital. He hosted events as a clown, to, mostly for charitable organizations. And he was like this great person who was like um, the director of the Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. And he met the first lady, um, Jimmy Carter's wife. And he was President Carter's wife. And he was this business contractor who had like all of these connections. He was affiliated with the Democratic Party in the area. He was very ambitious. He was very charismatic. He was just someone that people really loved and you, any documentary you watch, any interview watch, that is exactly what you get from that. And he essentially got caught because he got sloppy. So when it all boils down to it, John Wayne Gacy killed at least 33 young men and boys between 1972 and 1978. Most of them, and I believe his first kill was in 72. His second didn't happen until 74. And then between 76 and 78, he would later call them like his cruising years, which you can learn about as well, or ask me about in a couple of moments. But most of them were buried in his basement. I think it was like 29 of them were buried in his crawl space. Basement attic, that confuses me. I mean, a crawl space in upstate New York where I grew up is like totally different from a crawl space in Virginia where I am now. I But regardless, architecture words, whatever. Um, there were a few in his yard as well. And then he discarded a couple of bodies in the De Plains River because he ran out of room on his property. So mortifying to really think about. And if I if it feels like I'm like breezing through this, I totally am because it's awful. So Gacy went to a pharmacy, the Plains, to talk to the pharmacist about a contracting job there. While he was there, he saw Rob Peast, a 15-year-old part-time employee. When he saw Rob, he started openly and loudly talking about how much he pays these young men who work for him so that Rob would hear him and inquire about a job, which is exactly what happened. So when his mom came to pick him up, it was Rob's mom's birthday. 
He told her that he wanted to talk to the contractor who was back in the pharmacy, wanted to run back, have a chat with him. And when he goes back to talk to Gacy, Gacy tells him, you know what? Come with me, fill out some paperwork, apply. It's all back at my place. And uh, I'll take you back home to celebrate your mom's birthday. I get that what he did is horrific. Like you can't add any more horror to it. But like even hearing that kid say it's my mom's birthday (laughs) and still taking this poor baby, I just, I can't, I can't like, I cannot wrap my head around this creature disguised as a human being, because I do not believe for a second that he was, could have possibly been fully human. And I don't know what depth I'm actually saying that to, because I just refuse to believe he was human anyway. Well, Rob is at Gacy's house. He performs his typical tricks where he would give them alcohol, get them a little loosened up. There were various drugs he would use with them, like muscle relaxers, like anti-anxiety, like Valium, I believe was one of them. And he would inevitably end up getting them to put the handcuffs on themselves to try the trick to get out of the handcuffs. And this is when Gacy would then put a noose around their neck and he would tie it. He would like tighten it with some sort of like little wooden attachment so that every time they would contort their bodies to try to get out, it would tighten the rope around their neck and evidently would take any time from like minutes to actual hours to finally die from the asphyxiation. Or they would occasionally die from whatever he would stuff into their mouth. They would asphyxiate on that as well. He would call this his final trick. And by this point, obviously, the boys would know that it was over. They weren't leaving. This was not a trick. This was the end of their life. And he would then store the body underneath his bed for about a day or so, because most of these killings occurred between, I think it was like 3 and 6 a.m. So then he would stow the body under his bed. And I'm assuming he would come back from work and then he'd dump them in his pre-dug trenches in the basement, who he had other employees who we will later talk about dig the trenches not knowing why they were digging them. Anyway, at one point, Gacy put one of his victims, I think it was his second victim, in the closet. And he hadn't had anything in this boy's mouth. So liquids came out. And that is why he started stuffing things in their mouths before stowing them for the evening um, because it got his carpet messy. And his first victim was actually... I want to say almost accidental and we'll get into that as well. And I'm sure some of you are going to ask about it, but that was not planned. That was more of an, Oh fuck. I got startled. I did this and I think I really liked it. So anyway, all in 29 bodies recovered from the property, 33 in total. I believe most of them now have been identified. I want to say there's like five that haven't, or it might even be less than that. It used to be eight, but I know the numbers have gone down because 23andMe and Ancestry and all that stuff, it's helping people find victims and also killers. When Peace didn't come home that evening, his parents called the police and the owner of the pharmacy told police that he had left the pharmacy with Gacy. And this is obviously where he unravels because he knew that this kid was expected home. He knew that he had been seen and he didn't even care. He didn't stop to care, or maybe he couldn't care that this was more risky. So he went about what he was doing anyway. And the pharmacist said, yeah, well, he left with the contractor. This is John Wayne Gacy and the contractor. He left with them probably around nine that evening. So police followed up with Gacy, who claims to have never left the pharmacy with Rob, let alone offered him a job. He said he returned to the pharmacy because the owner, Torf, had called him back up there. However, the pharmacist had already spoken to police and 
already let them know that no, he had not in fact called Gacy at all. So his story is already conflicting here. And in this, the police see like what's going on. They run a background check. Okay. And when they run the background check, they find his charges back in Iowa, as well as an outstanding battery charge in Chicago. Now, police staked Gacy out for 10 days before his arrest. And with their first search warrant, they discovered his handcuffs, books on pedophilia, a small handgun, a syringe, hypodermic needle, several drugs like Valium and atropine, as well as boys underwear that was too small for Gacy and a blue parka on top of a toolbox that I believe was on top of a refrigerator belonged to him. There was also a photo receipt on Gacy's fridge door that was traced back to a pharmacy associate who had borrowed Rob's jacket that evening before to go outside on a break. And the evening he disappeared, she left the receipt in there and it seems that Gacy just had to hold on to it. And he had all sorts of trophies. And I know they go into more of that on the documentaries, watch the documentary. So he's got all these trophies. This seems to be something he took. And that's ultimately what got him smoking gun right there. He would basically chummy up with the surveillance team. He would eat dinner with them at restaurants when he would see them like following him. He was like, hey, just come on in. If you're going to follow me, you might as well eat too. And they would have to actively remind each other that this person was wanted for the death of at that time, one teenage boy, the disappearance of they didn't even know yet, although I'm sure they suspected that he was dead. So he chummies up with them. They don't eat like they have to keep pulling themselves out of it because that's how convincing he is. And ultimately, like I said, it was the receipt and that second search warrant when they discovered that's what led to the second search warrant. And it was the smell of the rotting corpses coming from the heat duct of the house that that second detective heard or smelled in that home. He was trying to trace a TV in Gacy's room back to someone else that was missing and trying to like see if like these pieces fit. I think it was a missing employee of his. And in the process, smelled the corpses coming up from the heat duct because the first time they visited the house, Gacy had enough sense to turn the heat off. So nothing would heat up and smell throughout the home. Now, a couple of employees of his David Cram and Michael Rossi actually told police that they had been ordered by Gacy to dig various trenches in his basement multiple times. They were never told why by Gacy. On December 20th, 1978, Gacy went to his attorney's office to discuss the civil suit he was bringing against the police department. Upon arriving, he asked for a glass of alcohol and began to recount every single murder to his attorney. I can only imagine what that poor asshole's face looked like. He must have just been in complete disbelief and shock. I, I don't know that like you can ever recover from hearing that. When he recounts the story to his attorney, his attorney recommends he goes to this appointment for a psychological evaluation like immediately. He wanted him to go like 9 a.m. the next day. He slept the night on the attorney's couch, though. He gets up. He says, I'm not going to this appointment. I'm, I've got things to do. And he leaves. And when he leaves... He basically makes his round saying goodbye to everybody. He goes to his dad's grave who had passed away from cirrhosis of the liver. Big shock there. He went to visit, um, I, I believe it was like old coworkers, other contractors, just anyone he felt that he needed to say goodbye to because he knew the arrest was inevitable at this point. So when police came to his home, he had turned his sump pump off so that it flooded the area with water. So the officers would have to wait for it to clear. And I, I don't know if he thought that that was actually going to do something to inhibit the investigation 
or if it was really just kind of that final sense of like, F you to authorities, let me make your day a little bit more difficult because he was a smart guy. I feel like he had to know that that wasn't really going to do much for him. But anyway, once they get in there, it didn't take them long, just a couple strikes of shovels to find that there were more than one, there was more than one body down there and that the advanced state of decomposition that they were in, there was no way that any of them were robbed. So he makes a formal statement on the 22nd, confessing to the murder of at least 30 boys, along with his older sister and the police, he takes them to the bridge where he had thrown Rob's body over, and I believe two other bodies. Gacy was then sentenced to death on March 13th, 1980, after a fairly short trial, and I believe the deliberation from the jury only took like three hours or something like that. It was really short. And in 1994, on May 10th, he was put to death via lethal injection, I believe. So if you don't care if your face is seen, go ahead and ask questions. If you would prefer just to type it, Chelsea will read it. I am not looking at anyone's faces. I am just simply going to kind of chill here go back into my little zone and um, I will not be fully channeling him because I refuse, but I will connect to him as a medium and I will connect a lot psychically just so that you guys know if I do channel him, it was not intentional. So there we go. All right. Who wants to kick it off? I will start. Okay. Um, So my questions are going to be all over the place because I'll just jump based on what it. I'm getting. Go okay. For it. Okay. So what I would like to know is at what point did he know there was no going back? Like there was no stopping the progression at, at, uh, of what he was doing. Okay. The first image that I get is him with the coffin back in the mortuary where he felt like at that point he already knew more was coming. Um, It feels like almost like this, like darkness just slides into his eyes. And I feel like what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, and I apologize for the graphic nature. And again, if you bow out in the middle of this, no worries. You are totally fine. I do not expect anyone to stay if it's too much. Um, So what I hear and what I feel is like that first, stab into his first victim, the kid who was making him breakfast. As soon as he threw that knife in, he felt like this exhilaration that he just like, he couldn't like, I feel like I see like a little bit of blood, like right on his face right there. And he like wipes it. And it just feels like animalistic. Like he couldn't stop. Um, And, and he, the, the fact like that, I feel like he waited until 74 to kill again what I'm seeing is almost like his hand, like with like a tremor, like he's trying so hard to control it for a while. Um, I would be interested in knowing too, if his like clowning, so to speak, took, had like an uptick or if he was doing like more of that between 72 and 74 and trying to like find his good side or find the good or stay in like the light of it all, I feel like. But it's interesting because what I see too is his eyes flash the same way that like his dad's would have when he was drinking. It's that same darkness like is behind him. Like I think his dad was much more of a monster than he knew even from what he saw. And I feel like there's a lot of similarity there in that. 
Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it definitely does because the way I'm feeling is that this was not, you know, you said, I don't know, I don't want to call him a man, but he was a man who had such an inability to, once it, he was on that path to change it like an addict, but I see mm -hmm. like there's no stopping it. And so like you said, you saw the tremble. Like I see like almost like an addict, like detoxing, you know, like yes. him, him trying to put it off, put it off, put it off. And he just couldn't. Um, so my next question is kind of related to that. And just there was a point when he stopped caring if he got caught, like he got sloppy, you said, but the way, like the way I feel it and sense it is that he was tired and he was so out of control. He couldn't even he couldn't care. So it's, I remember reading that there was a, a point where he said there were nights where he'd do doubles. He would kill two people in one night. And I, I feel like he doesn't, I know he remembers all of them. And like, that's some of like the freakiest thing is like the detail that he remembers them in, but it's also that it doesn't like, how do I want to explain this? When I tap into someone who has like schizophrenia or um, Alzheimer's or something that's really mind altering, something that really shifts the way that uh, like natural human thought occurs, it feels different. It feels just like, like disoriented and it feels like chaos um, or someone who's like in a manic episode when they pass. But with him, it feels like two different energies entirely. Almost like Jekyll and like, Hyde is what is the is what the I void keep hearing. Him. Is like there's two, almost like literally two different people living inside of him. And but like yeah. medically speaking, there wasn't. Do you know no. what I'm saying? Like I don't. He didn't feel have like a mental disorder in the way we consider mental health issues or any kind of mental health right. disease. I don't think we have a word for it, honestly. He was fucking dark and he had some fucking issues. Let's, that's how we're going to put it. Right. Because this isn't something you can manage. Like, I don't think that it is. I think that people like this, once it starts, it starts. It doesn't stop until they are stopped. Right. So that's absolutely what it feels like. But that is exactly what it is. It's like a heaviness. And it, it's, I don't even want to say darkness. It's more like just like this void entirely where there's nothing to fill it with light. Like you can't chase, like darkness can be chased out with light, but this doesn't feel like you could even illuminate it to me. Um, if that makes sense. I, I do though. I think I would equate that 100% to like an addiction, 100%. We've got some questions coming in on the chat. Cool. Uh, Dana would like to know why he chose that age range or what made him gravitate towards that age range. Okay. So what I see is like the mannerism is like this, like, like this lick of the lip is what I'm seeing. And then it's, it, they had to trust you. He did kill a few others who were older, but they were more difficult. They were more difficult. And these kids, they just saw an adult and they trusted the adult. He's no different from like a teacher or, or like a friend of the family or, or whatever. They would trust him in the same way that he trusted his dad's friend. And that became 
I know. I feel like I'm getting like from him, like he's saying like something about the truth. Like you, you want to trust the truth, but the truth is that people aren't always who they say they are. I feel like he's alluding to like his dad and to the people who were supposed to be there to help him and protect him. But I also don't feel like he's being honest. I feel like he's just feeding me shit. Does that make sense? Because it doesn't feel like I've connected with spirits who have remorse or, or want to express like being apologetic or, or anything like that. And this just kind of feels like talking himself in circles. It's almost like connecting to Bundy without the finesse. <laughs> it's not, it's not nearly as, um, I don't want to piss off a serial killer on the other side. So never mind. but it's not, it's not nearly as like, um, the charisma is not the same. I think he chose this psychically feeling into it. I think that he chose this, um, this age range exactly for, for why he said, yeah, like this is an easy target. And much older than that was too difficult. He could still subdue these people. I think he had a taste for men who were actually bigger and stronger than he was, but he couldn't let anyone subdue him because he couldn't not be in control of it. And Janet would like to know why he chose to keep the bodies in his home. I get like the, the imagery is like, he's like scratching like that little, like right in the back of the head where it um, goes from like the base of your head into your spine and he's like looking down and he's like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I feel like is that like, he doesn't really know. It was part of like, he needed them nearby. He knew they were there. If he knew they were there, he didn't have to worry about anyone finding them because only he knew they were there. It feels like a really short sighted, almost like when you see people who they say like the the age you succumb to like addiction is the age that you stop maturing. Right. So this kind of feels to me like he's not thinking with like an adult mind. He's more thinking like this is safe and I can protect and it's right here and no one knows my secret. Almost like you would hide like a candy bar under the bed as a child. I think he kept them there to keep them close. He had full control over what was around it and who was around it. Go ahead. Uh, Christina would like to know how he managed to traffic children while he was in prison. Ooh, that is something I did not know. Christina always has like the, the like the secret sauce. Like she knows all the things. Seriously. Christina, do you need a job in research? Um, <laughs> okay. Let's see. Did he deny those allegations? Yeah. It's a whole documentary. Oh, I'll have to watch that. How did you manage to traffic children while you were in prison? I'm getting this. I'm asking them if you, typically I ask these questions like just in here. So I'm trying to share with you guys also what I'm doing, but did you, did you not traffic them or do you not want to talk about how you did it? He, he said, I'm not on trial in my fucking death. He also said something I don't really want to repeat, but I will. He said, I didn't traffic babies. I rape boys who were almost men. What I'm getting is that he wouldn't have done anything that he didn't get an immediate physical gratification for. So I don't know if this is a conspiracy or if this is like proven that he did it, but I get the sense that if it's proven, he's not going to admit it. 
but I feel like there's more around it that feels to me like if he wasn't getting a physical payout for this physical, not monetary, not anything else he had to like, he would have made it very well known what he was doing. Um, but again, a liar is a liar is a liar. So take from that what you will. That's what I'm getting. I need my own magic eight ball on that one. Um, Apparently the documentary is called The Clown and the Candyman. Oh, that sounds like a solid no, but I'll probably watch it anyway. <laughs> it's, it's rough. It's rough. It's like two or three hours long, but it's it's good. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> All right. What's our next question? Excuse me while I scratch my back. Um, so I'm curious if like the trauma that he faced in his younger years and being sexually assaulted, like kind of guided his sexual preferences and perversions. Like if he feels like the two are connected. What I keep seeing is him dressing up as a female. And I don't think that he was able to fully express exactly who he felt like he was. And I, I feel like it wasn't, it was like the perfect storm of things. It was like, number one, it was his DNA. It was just like the way he was made. And then it was also the abuse that he suffered both physically, mentally, verbally from his dad. And then the sexual abuse from the friend and then being bullied and then feeling more like a woman than a man. And then having to stand up in this like larger body and be like this behemoth of some kind of like stoic, just like manliness because like his dad was a mechanic and he's a contractor and he just had to show up as manly as he could. But what he wanted to be was so much more, gentle. And I feel like he was constantly forced against the grain of what he felt like he actually was. Does that make sense? It does. And Christina is saying that she believes his mom found women's underwear in his room that possibly were his sisters. Um, And Dana is also saying being a female would make the sexual abuse he suffered not so socially unacceptable. Exactly. And then Dana is also curious if the clown costume started before the murders or after before is what I heard instantly, but I, let me see before, but like just before I want to say before, but now I really want to know too. I feel before, but I'm not positive on that. And like, I don't actually know that fact either. So I would love for someone to either debunk or prove it. Um, Did he ever let anyone go on? So the way he tells it is that he let, um, the wrestler, he let the wrestler go on purpose, but we all know he didn't really let the wrestler go on purpose. So I'm going to say no, but he thinks that like, it was my idea kind of thing. After he killed his first victim, he needed to see the whole thing play out. If he would have skipped a step and let them go, it made him feel like what I'm getting is like, um, excuse me, like an OCD tendency. Like if you don't like tap it three times, then something terrible is going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Or like you don't check the stove like 
eight times and then like twist it half an hour back, like that's setting your energy off. Like this doesn't feel right. That obsession comes in over the compulsion. And I feel like if he didn't carry all steps through that, he would have felt the compulsion to like kill again, even though he did, but I'm saying like, it would, it would feel like he failed if he didn't see it through. So anytime anyone did get away or he didn't actually kill them, it was not intentional and it it like fueled his rage more. Christina wants to know um, if he hadn't been caught, would he have continued to kill? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But I don't think that he would have gotten away with it for much longer anyway, because he was, I mean, number one, he was running out of body spaces. Number two, how could the neighbors not know anything? Like what the actual fuck? Can we talk about that? Like, how? This is before we're all shoving our faces in our computers and they still didn't know. Like, were they blind and like had no sense of smell? I don't understand. But anyway, um, I mean, I know Chicago winters are cold, but the summers are hot. They had to have. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to get carried away here. Um, I think I forgot what your question was because I got carried away and how no one could know. I'm so sorry. You answered it. <laughs> I did. She asked, okay. He asked if he would have continued, and you said yes. Um, Dana yeah, wants he would have to continued. know I just why can't. he killed two victims in one night. It didn't last long enough. Was the first thing I heard. Even before I leaned all the way into it, he didn't get enough out of the torture and the suffering, so he had to do another. And so, sometimes, oh, sorry, oppor- opportunity would present itself, and he just had to see if he could do it. So I know this is very similar to the question that was asked, not the last one, but the one before. Was there anything other than getting caught that would have made him stop? No, somebody else killing him. I don't know what to make of it, but he flashed me an image of his children. But I also feel like that's more like him fucking with me than anything else. I really do. I don't think that that is anything that could have stopped. He literally talks about how he was involved in their lives, but he never saw them again. So he's creating shit in his own head. I feel like he has a this dichotomy of who he is. He has mm-hmm. a not really a rationalization or justification, but in his mind, he has who he th- thinks he was. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. on one mm-hmm. side and then who he really was. So it's not even who he really was and <clears throat> who he wanted to be. He thinks he was yes, a good solid citizen. And it's not like in his mind, it's split. There's two roads and he, can I just talk about, can I just say what I'm getting? Yeah. Okay. His dark, that dark piece is like um, not like he doesn't even really want to acknowledge that any of that was because who he really was, was this community conscious person. But then the darkness to him was the overlap between sexuality and, and perversion, not my word. And he wanted boys to look like men he didn't want children. He wanted boys to look like men, but he wanted to be able to have the power and control over them. And he just truly just thinks it was like two separate, like two separate, completely different people. So he can, it's not even a rationalization, his good side. That's who he was. It's literally a compartment. It's like who he was, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost like, yeah, it's very 
uh, unique situation. And it was very sexual. There was the sexual gratification was the point. The killing, that was the point. It, absolutely. That's I would definitely what, agree with that. That's where he got off. And that's why two a night, because he needed more. It wasn't good enough. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Dana asked if he ever sexually abused his own children. I got a no on that. I got a definite no. Also, they were very young. So I wonder if that is part of it. They just weren't at that age yet. <laughs> that was appealing to him. But also, I don't feel like he would have with his own children, especially not his son. I mean, definitely not his daughter, but I definitely don't think his son. Um Christina, I'm sure you guys all read that. I'm trying to figure out how such a narcissistic asshole got two wives. <laughs> it's awesome. And Dana says he's not even cute, but I don't want him to be mad at me. Don't worry. We'll send him away when we're done. Um, do you guys have any more questions before we wrap up? Um, I was going to add on to what Sabrina was saying about kind of like the two sides Um, There's an interview of him where he's talking about like how good of a father he is and how he's like basically like back then's like gentle parent. Like he didn't believe in like uh, physically abusing his children or anything. And the interviewer is like, yet you're strangling young men and like what yeah. but he like did not like the two were not anything that interviewer like right ended me mm-hmm. he was like um but what i i yeah. saw that one that was that was something um okay so if no one has any questions does anyone want to put in for well let me say this okay no one has any questions then stick around but Thank you all for uh, listening to this episode. Oh, Dana has one last comment. Oh, I'm so oh, sorry. Go ahead. She said um, when he was sexually assaulted as a child, um, was he strangled then? Ooh, what I just saw was an image of someone like over him, like his, his, I don't know how to, like, I know how to say this, but I don't want to say it this way. So it's like, he's on his hands and knees and someone's covering his mouth while they're doing what they're doing. So I don't think it was strangling, but I think it was like silencing. And I feel like there is a threat of like, I'll snap your neck. Like all it would take for me to do is just snap your neck. Casey also had like a quick switch. Like he would flip into like this angry asshole, like so fast. I feel like Um, he definitely was trying to find the correlation between his experience and what he did. Um, Dana is a woman of science. He is, um, I, I would say it's, it's that, it's that silencing. It's the silencing and it's the threat of how easy it would be to end him. That's honestly, that's what I'm seeing is like with his hand, that guy's hand over Gacy's mouth. It's like how quick it would just like a, to like kill him right there. Just like that, because he was a grown ass man and Gacy was a child younger than who he was choosing to assault, which I would bet also played into how he didn't feel like it was that bad because these kids were older at least. Um, All right, my friends, we are going to send him away because I have had enough of him. Okay. Hmm. All right. And then also I want to say whoever, well, if you're listening to the replay or you're watching it, thank you all so much for Sticking around. This is what you get on a live Patreon episode that we do once a month with either a serial killer or a victim. The killers are obviously more fun, but 
famous people as well. However, um, you only get this experience if you get to come on here live with us. I am getting distracted by trying to light my um, bundle of rosemary and I think Rose, I don't even remember what's in here, but it's cleansing. So thank you all for being on here. I'm going to stop the recording and check in with the patrons. Bye-bye.